Welcome to Unscripted Startups. I'm your host, Cameron Stack, here in the beautiful Silicon Slopes, Utah. This podcast is the place to be to receive actionable insight and advice for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. Today, we will be chatting with Joshua Scheffner, the founder and CEO of Blue Mango, a international social enterprise which is transforming the way fruits are packaged and preserved. Thanks for coming on the show. I briefly mentioned your company, but give me the lowdown. Tell me why you started it, how you came up with the idea, and all the juicy bits. Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks for having me on. So Blue Mangoes in general is a brand built around the idea that can transform fruit waste into an opportunity for rural communities across the world. What I mean by that is that belt that goes across the world, along the equator, where fruits grow in a natural abundance, so much so that local, rural, often impoverished communities can't sell it because they have so much. So normally that all goes to waste, but instead, by designing machines that work without electricity, we can preserve that fruit and turn it into products that we can then sell in, in the United States. And that's, that's the idea behind Blue Mangoes. That sounds super cool. I know you guys are in Africa right now, but what other countries do you have plans to get into? Yeah, so right now we are working in East and West Africa, Central America, and the Caribbean. Okay, that's super cool. For us, that's Uganda, Kenya, Tanzania, Liberia, uh, Panama, Haiti, and Jamaica. And we're not so keen on expanding too far right now. Uh, Partnerships that we're looking at that go into more countries, but really now that we've spread across the globe in these different regions, now we want to dive deeper. And, you know, it it takes a lot more resources to go to a new place and set up all those connections instead of just starting more cooperatives in the communities where we already are. Yeah, that makes total sense. What's the best conditions for Blue Mango? So I'd say really good conditions are, are in Panama, are in Jamaica, and that's just because it's easier to work in those areas. But for us, we often seek out places that are typically pretty hard to work. Uganda, Haiti, Liberia, they're they're not known for how easy it is to get things out of the country or Uh how easy it is to do business there. So that's where we prefer to work because we can make the most impact by bringing dollars and paying, paying farmers and the women in our cooperatives, you know, at, at a fair fair trade price that helps them way more in those countries than if we were in others. That's super awesome. Stepping back a little bit, tell me about like how you first got involved in entrepreneurship and how you came out with this idea. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't want to be in entrepreneurship. I actually didn't like entrepreneurs because the idea of it to me was people who walked around calling themselves all these different C-suite titles and hadn't actually accomplished anything. And I still think, you know, those people are out there, but I fell backwards into social entrepreneurship. And I specify social entrepreneurship because, you know, that's the part that I care about. And it's because I I tried doing a project and that was, you know, it worked, but it was small scale. And then we tried being a nonprofit and it just wasn't sustainable. And then eventually we kind of accidentally fell upon the idea that, you know, this could be a business and maybe that's how we make the impact sustainable and we make it work. And, and so that's why we're social entrepreneurs. The idea that some people haven't really done it, but I think it's also for the entrepreneurs who have done it and have been successful, I think they have different metrics than me. Uh, and that their success is purely like how quickly did they move toward an exit? You know, you know, how much did they raise? How quickly? 
I think I think for us it's more of like building a company for the long term that's truly profitable and in that way sustainable being good and, and impacting people so so impact is my measure of success which ultimately does come down to you know us, us making money and us growing um, mm-hmm. but I think I think it's a different metric of success that, uh, that's this part how do you measure impact so for us it's pretty easy to pick what we're going to measure not necessarily easy to measure it but easy to to say what we think matters so the first one would be the money that we pay for the fruits so we don't give back a certain percentage of profits because the the benefit to the farmers and to the women is already built into the price that we pay for the fruit so that's the first impact that we have how much are we paying for fruits how much have we paid each year you know, then we get another thing. Like, we start to measure how many fruits uh, didn't go to waste because we dried them. How did that affect trees? How many fewer trees were cut down because they were no longer seen as a nuisance and they're more seen as an opportunity? Uh, you can get into metric tons of carbon sequestration based off of that. It starts to get a little, you know, stretching it a little. But but then then you go back to the money and and how's it impacting? The women in the cooperatives that we have use it in all sorts of things. One of them, volunteer teachers, you know, the school didn't close because they have dehydrators and, you know, it's an opportunity for them to make money and for it to be their full-time job. Women are paying for kids to go to a boarding school in a, in northern Uganda. So, so there's, there's a lot of qualitative impact that we can look at as well as just quantitative, you know, how many dollars did we, did we spend. That's super incredible. For me personally, I'm more interested in building a long-term business opposed to a lot of the entrepreneurs nowadays who just want a quick exit and it may work for them. I'm more interested in building something long-term. So how have you been able to innovate and how have you evolved that over time? So we, so we have passive solar dehydrators, and that means is that they work without electricity. Um, and we also make sure that they're built out of local materials. So we re-engineer them for each region we work in. So that's been great. The design has obviously evolved a lot over time. All of them have been done internally in our team. I, I've had my hand in a few of them. I think how that's evolved is at this point, you know, we've, we've done a train-the-trainer model now. So we've trained groups of masons and carpenters in, in most of the countries that we work in to be able to build these uh, without our presence and, and to then be able to teach others. So in that way, we're, you know, disseminating the knowledge, but also just getting more dehydrators to be built, which is really the point. They're not something we make money off of. It's something that helps us dry fruit, which, you know, is ultimately what we're doing at the end of the day is selling that dried fruit. But, you know, at this point, we're now talking about manufacturing dehydrators in the United States or uh, country outside of the U.S. And because of the, by manufacturing it, we'd be able to push out so many more dehydrators that it would make up for that additional cost of shipping, of manufacturing. And, you know, the setup then is way easier. We want it to be collapsible, fit inside a shipping container, you know, hundreds of them. And that, that's an easy rollout then. We're now looking at more capacity uh, so that we can hit retail sales rather than low growth for it. So it's been a little bit of a mindset shift. And I, I wouldn't say that we've fully committed, but we're definitely going down that path for now. Sounds like you've made a lot of progress. Uh, tell me about how you went about recruiting these local people and your current staff, because I noticed that you have five full-time employees 
How did you get them sold on the mission and the values of the company? Because I know with a lot of startups, they struggle with finding people who want to get involved and aren't there just for the money. Exactly what we did with the people in the U.S., one of our team members in the Netherlands. It was really selling them on the vision, on the impact that we can make, and on the future success of the business. You know, being able to support us with with real jobs and a real salary uh, later. So that that's how we brought on that team. And honestly, it it was not easy. It was not quick. But we took our time and tried to find the right people. I think we have an awesome team right now. For our global staff, that's you know on the ground with them. You know, I think in the same way, we do pay them. Um, it. Much easier for us to be able to lend off friends and and to uh, just work a side job and everything. But but for for on the ground staff who need to be working full time constantly, you know we knew that we needed to pay them. So so they're salaried right now. <laughs> That's definitely a drain on us and it's tough every month. You know finding the money to strap together and pay them. But you know, we're getting that done. So. Yeah, I totally get that. With my past company, I was trying to raise money and get through sales. When you're first starting off, if you're paying someone, it's hard to really turn that money and reinvest it. So yeah, it can be a struggle. Tell me a little bit about your Kickstarter campaign. I know you guys raised eleven thousand dollars, but tell me a little more about that and how it really took off and how you were able to raise that amount of funds. Yeah, so it was a big social media push, <laughs> obviously. Um, we got a lot of success early on. I think we had like $6,500 by the second day. So after that, you know, organic social media campaigns really only go so far unless you, you know, manage to make it viral. We did our best to push it as far as we could. We got $11,000 out of it. <laughs> it was amazing. We have 200 backers who are amazing. Honestly, a straightforward plan. We had video content that we planned on pushing out. We did personal videos. We talked about the process and about what we were doing, and, and people liked watching it, so we got us some attention. I think I think at the end of the day, the most successful thing we did, we, were, we worked with a company called BottleSpark, which helped connect us with small uh, streamers and with high engagement rates. That was really successful. Um, and I think also we just gave out free samples at uh, Ward 4, which is a co-working space in Milwaukee. And just doing that and just putting us in front of a bunch of people, it was really successful. That's awesome. So, like, Twitch streamers and stuff, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it sounds a little unconventional, but it, I think it really worked. Uh-huh. I mean, they have to. Uh-huh. I mean, they have to have something to snack on while they're streaming, so that, that actually makes perfect sense. I know a lot of people are experimenting with the influencer market and they're like, is it worth it? Is it not worth it? You know, should I try it? And when it comes to all product-based business, I mean, yes, you are spending money to ship out the product and the physical one. If you find the right people, you don't have to pay them 100, 200 bucks to post about it. They would just be happy to try it have any insight that you would give future entrepreneurs who are trying to do influencer marketing for their small business? So I would I would say that if you start a business, you'll start getting a lot of offers for things that are like, hey, $300 and you'll access an influencer of like 5,000 to 10,000 followers. And for 315, it'll be 10,000 to 20,000 followers. Like I would say don't do those. 
um, it's really hard to measure your return. I would say affiliate marketing is something that's very successful. You know, you, you can map out the margins for it. And I think that's what matters. If you can make the margins work for affiliate marketing, um, which, you know, you can adjust how much money the influencer will get, you know, percentage of each conversion. You can track how much money that the consumer will get a discount on. You know, if you can work that out with your margins and it's okay, I'd go that route. I would be wary to just say, like, influencer marketing is the way to go, though. I think affiliate marketing is very good. Based on conversions, it's safer, and it's not expensive. If you are successful on affiliate marketing, then it's not expensive because you're making money. And if you're not successful, then it's still affordable because you didn't really pay any money. But with, with just paying an influencer like a block of money up front, it's hit or miss. And the misses can really hurt. So. Don't forget to check out Blue Bagos on social media and online. We want to share your story. So if you're subscribed to this podcast, go in the show notes down below and click our email. Put in the email message, share my story. Tell us about your business. How is it doing? What are the hurdles you're facing? What are you doing well? We will pick one person to be shared on our podcast. We really want to help you guys grow and give back in a meaningful and impactful way. So don't forget to smash that subscribe button and start downloading each and every episode of our podcast. It only takes than 30 seconds and it means the absolute world to us. I hope you guys have an incredible week and don't forget to live life 1% better each and every day. Until next time, this has been a Unscripted Startups production. Don't forget to check us out online at unscriptedstartups.com or on your favorite social media platform at Unscripted Startups. Startups.